Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the May 24th, 2022 edition of Ask a Leader. Today, just two weeks away from California's June 7th primary, other state primaries are happening right now in Texas, Georgia, Alabama, Arkansas, and Minnesota. Yes, as always, make sure your friends and family registered in those states turn out, vote, and make sure that their vote is counted. Looking at you, Georgia, and Texas mainly. Now for today's program, my first guest will be Assemblywoman Cotty Petrie-Norse, running for her third term, this time in the brand new 73rd Assembly District, which includes Irvine, Costa Mesa, and portions of Tustin. In the second segment, Brian Chihok, counsel for the United States Drug Enforcement Administration in the Southern District of California will be the last of the three candidates challenging Orange County District Attorney incumbent Todd Spitzer to appear on the show. So, yes, the baseball park in Anaheim will be an organizing principle or two. We'll be right back. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. My first guest is Assemblywoman Cotty Petrie-Norris, representing the 74th District. She's a Democrat running for her third term, now in the new 73rd District, against Representative Stephen Choi, these being the only two candidates running in this new district, which includes Irvine, Costa Mesa, and portions of Tustin. And I, I just want to take one pause, listeners, and with Assemblywoman Cotty Petrie Norris, there probably would have been an additional Republican running in this new district. But Kelly Embry, a rising star in the, the local GOP, succumbed to COVID in her just in her mere 40s. And so, I, I mean, she likely would have been in this very race. I think she was a Costa Mesa resident. So it's to take stock of the toll of COVID. And we'll bring up COVID in sort of lessons learned and policy in the on the state level here in this intervening time together. So about Assemblywoman, Petrie North serves as chair of the Accountability and Administrative Review Committee and as chair of the Select Committee on Small Business and Entrepreneurship. And she also serves on the Assembly's committees for Banking and Finance, Revenue and Taxation, Jobs, Economic Development and the Economy, and the Military and Veterans Affairs. Prior to being elected, she was a small business owner and served on the Housing and Human Services Committee of Laguna Beach. She comes to us today from her office in Sacramento. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, Assemblywoman Cotty Petrie-Norris. Well, good morning, Claudia. Thank you so much uh, for inviting me. Looking forward to our conversation. Absolutely. Well, I I want to keep a few things sort of uh, comparable with the, the interview I did with Assemblyman Choi about the last month. So I just maybe just a real quick lap here of what your most what achievements you've kept that you're really the most proud of. And then we're going to get into the heady stuff of the work ahead. Claudia, I am a mom and a businesswoman. I was elected to the Assembly for the first time in 2018. That was the first time I had uh, run for or, or won elected office. And uh, I approach this job each and every day 
not as a political insider, but as a mom, as a businesswoman, and really as a representative of our community. I ran for office because our district was getting shortchanged, and uh, I'm really proud of what I have been able to accomplish in my first phase, one and a half, almost two full terms. I've championed legislation to keep our community safe, to protect the California coast from the threat of sea level rise, uh, to increase school funding, support our local businesses, uh, create good jobs, and, and really fundamentally to build a thriving California economy where we can all succeed. Um, I've also secured millions of dollars in funding for our district and for Orange County, including a groundbreaking wildfire prevention response program, coastal restoration and preservation projects, and an initiative to end veteran homelessness in Orange County. Um, it's certainly been a uh, busy and productive first two terms and uh, really looking forward to continuing this work and uh, uh, and continuing um, to represent our community in the State Assembly. So could you talk, Kati Petrie-Norris, to the, the uh, sort of the interplay and your involvement in the intergovernmental response to the gas pipeline leaks offshore and that liability that may be posing for, uh, we, we know that the ownership and uh, the commitments have changed hands with those that infrastructure in the seabed. So I'd like to have you talk about your role in that and how it could be tightened up because th- those that liability remains under the seabed. Claudia, uh, when, when our coast was uh, struck by the October oil spell uh, in October of 2021, it really was in some ways, I think, our worst fears come to life. It had had, had a devastating impact on our local environment, um, on our community, and and also on our local economy. I uh, was appointed to chair a assembly select committee on the Orange County oil spill and really believe it, that that's an important step to ensure appropriate oversight, accountability, and change. Um, we're working to get to the bottom of what happened, to ensure that we hold the responsible party to account, um, and fundamentally to ensure that we learn from this disaster and ensure a tragedy like this does not happen again on our watch. Um, my, my team and I are working in tandem with uh, the investigators and with, with federal oversight bodies to get to answers to these questions. And um, we are really focused specifically on opportunities to update protocols and regulations related to inspections and response, uh, opportunities to upgrade equipment and technology, um, and also, and really importantly, to begin the process to ensure that we uh, implement an expedited plan to phase out offshore drilling and to decommission existing wells off our coast. Uh, The bottom line is that uh, when there's drilling, there's spilling. We know those rigs represent an unacceptable risk. Uh, And so we are working to bring all stakeholders to the table to, to get those rigs gone and ensure that a disaster like this does not occur again on our watch. Well, that that does uh, hint at a lot of um, work yet to be done, and uh, that we were spared a major a major disaster is was sort of like a pause. But I 
uh, it, it does loom o over, and I really need to make sure we brought that up. For those of you who've just yep. tuned in, my guest is Assemblywoman Kadi Petrie Norris, currently representing the 74th District. And as a Democrat, she's now running for her third term in the California Assembly, this time in the new 73rd. Folks in Irvine, Costa Mesa, and the southern portions, I guess it's the southern and eastern portions of Tustin, that, that means you. Well, in Orange County, over 7,000 people have died of COVID, and there's 607,000 cases, which means there's quite a bit of long COVID to handle. I'd like to know... What lessons in from the, your legislative functions and responsibilities have you learned on all the fronts that the pandemic has been dealt, Cody Petrie Norris? Well, Claudia, uh, as you said, the COVID nineteen crisis has taken an absolutely devastating toll uh, across the state of California and across the entire world. Um, we've had more than one million Americans have lost their lives including, tragically, as you noted in your opening remarks, including uh, Kelly Irby, who was a woman who ran for this seat in 2020. Uh, we all, all of our lives have been touched by tragedy over the course of the last two years. We all know, we all have a friend or a neighbor or, or a family member um, who, has, uh, who has had COVID or who has tragically uh, had to be hospitalized because of it or, or even lost their life. Um, I, was, uh, I was only elected for 15 months before we uh, had to shut down the state because of this crisis. And uh, in many ways, I became a pandemic-era legislator, and uh, we focused our attention over the course of the last two years since we were doing everything that we could to respond to, and then recover and rebuild from this pandemic. Uh, in terms of the, the big lessons learned, and, and certainly there is nothing nothing to show the cracks in the system like a pandemic, um, but I think for me there's, there's really two big things. Um, number one, we need to enhance our investments in public health and our emergency response infrastructure to ensure that we are better prepared for the next crisis and the next disaster. And number two, uh, we need to ensure that as the state of California, we are getting the fundamentals of government right. And uh, one of the, the real cracks that was exposed in the system was related to uh, California's Employment Development Department. And oh my uh, gosh. the that was like a... billions of dollars. Yes. Oh. Yes, the billions of dollars that were lost, the millions of Californians that waited for weeks, for months when they were desperate to secure their benefits. And um, as chair of the Assembly's Accountability and Administrative Review Committee, overhauling EDD and ensuring, ensuring that we are making systemic changes in that department and across state agencies is one of my, my top priorities uh, as we emerge from the pandemic and uh, look to move forward. So in terms of long COVID, the more public health news that we consume, we understand there's a real, uh, a huge mental health and uh, a capacity problem that uh, is going to have to be covered by a multitude of sectors and agencies. So is California responding to that need that is just sort of building? And we, we just keep getting different kinds of long COVID with different mutations of COVID. 
So how is the Absolutely. state addressing and that 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 need for health? Uh, and you you highlighted what I think is one of the biggest challenges facing the state right now, and and that is uh, mental health. And um, I think it is it's really no secret that our system for mental health care is fundamentally broken, and we see the fallout from that every single day on our streets, in our emergency rooms, and even in our county jails. And um, we are making enormous, enormous investments in mental health care across the state, including, and I think really importantly, on our school campuses. We've seen uh, the ravages of this pandemic and the impact it's had on our kids. And uh, we need to ensure that we're doing everything we can to get in front of that, so that we don't uh, don't lose uh, don't lose a generation. Um, and so, at the state level, we really are prioritizing investments to build out our mental health infrastructure, to plug the many gaps that exist, and ensure that uh, we've got programs to meet the needs of Californians um, here locally in Orange County. This has also been really a priority for me. I um, was really proud in last year's budget to secure funding for Be Well, which is Orange County's network of mental health and wellness hubs. I, I secured funding to develop a second Be Well campus, uh, which, again, will just ensure that we have the resources and the programs available for, for people in crisis. And that's that second campus will be here in Irvine, folks. And we've covered that, that a little correct. bit, right? Right. Well, so if California's budget is going to have is it a hundred billion dollars surplus, Cotty Petrie Norse, what is your thinking about the best ways to manage that unprecedented amount and sort of bring everybody along with, uh, like meeting those the needs of that 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 public health that we just talked about in the previous question. So how we we know there's the GAN limit passed by the voters in 70, 1979 that limits you know what you can spend on any given area. But how how do you finesse that to that surplus to deal with these pending public health issues? Mm-hmm. Well, as you said, Claudia, uh, both last year and this year. California uh, was blessed with a really unprecedented and extraordinary budget surplus. So in last year's budget, we had a surplus of $74 billion. This year, the estimate is that we are going to have a surplus of $97 billion. And the B. That gives, yes, and that really does give us, the resources, uh, as we shape our California comeback, the resources to forge a swift, equitable, and robust recovery. And we are making historic investments to tackle some of California's toughest challenges. So we are making historic investments in education, from cradle to career, uh, including expanded slots for UCs and CSUs so that we've got more opportunities for more California kids. We're making historic investments on housing and homelessness, historic investments to build climate resilience, and, uh, as I said, historic investments in mental health care. And these are really, these are incredibly important, and I've championed a number of those initiatives. Um, But another thing that I think is just, is really, really important is that we've got, in addition to, to, 
making these historic investments and thinking bold and thinking big, tackling our, our intractable challenges, we've also got to get the fundamentals right. And um, I mean, like, three things by that. So, number one, we have to make sure that California's house is built on a solid foundation and that we are uh, saving for a rainy day and that we're building our reserves because we know the economy, economic cycles goes up. What goes up is going to come down. We've got to be prepared for that. Um, number two, we have to get, and I started to mention this when we were talking about EDD, we've got to get the basics right. There were just too many examples where government did not deliver. And while new programs are, are, are sexy, we've got to fix what's broken. And uh, number three, and this is, is really an area of focus for me, number three, we have got to ensure that this spending is accountable. Uh, we've got to make sure that as we're making these historic investments, we are getting historic results. And that really is my focus as chair of the Assembly's Accountability and Administrative Review Committee. We've got to make sure that your taxpayer dollars are getting put to good use and delivering results for our state. One topic, and it's not necessarily embedded in those committee responsibilities that you have, but it, it's it's very pervasive, is the whole the drought crisis and managing that. Mm-hmm. Where does that surplus go into? And I, I got to say that every all the big investments that I've seen are heavy-duty, old-tech kind of investments in managing the drought. And I don't know how involved you are, Assemblywoman Petrie Norris, to like deal with the the sound retrofitting leak management uh, massive kind of campaign to conserve because we're going in the wrong direction so what are you doing about dealing with the drought management that it is here and the leadership is a little flaccid right now in in getting the state on board unless unless there's this pandemic fatigue settling in and people can't handle the word mandate for anything. So what are you doing about drought management? It's here and it's getting more intense. It, it absolutely is here. Uh, severe drought, raging wildfires, 100-year floods. Uh, the, the climate crisis is certainly here and now in California, and we are seeing the ravages of that each and every day. Um, as I mentioned, we invested in last year's budget, and we're doubling down on those investments in this year's budget to build climate resilience. That includes uh, helping our coastal communities prepare for sea level rise. That includes better preparation so that we uh, are better prepared to respond to wildfire threats. Um, it also it also includes meaningful investments to address the severe drought that California is experiencing. And um, that includes investments in water infrastructure and storage, which are so, so critical, important, and in many cases, years overdue. Um, It also includes additional uh, investments in technology and improvements so that we can do a better job at conservation and water reuse. Uh, So this is the... The subject of water uh, is going to, I believe, continue to be a more and more important issue for California. And uh, it, it starts to, it gets to the point where uh, 
I think the, the issue of uh, of access to water will become one of the um, most hard-fought battles, I think, over the course of the next number of years uh, as we continue to face the severe droughts in California. Well, you, you uh, the, they call it, what is it, the, the water buffalo in the room, maybe, <laughs> is that, that the, the power managers in the state, those are huge headwinds for anybody who's trying to do a, an affordable and an effective kind of drought management plan. How are you dealing? I mean, the, the we know, we understand how the governor was given the directions, like you've got to let Poseidon be approved. You've got to make sure that he's, he's got his eye on the peripheral canal coming from the northern part of the state. I mean, so you're dealing with some very retro managers with retro technology. How are you dealing with those sorts of headwinds, Cotty Petrie North? Well, I think, Claudia, when we uh, talk about what we need to do to respond to the drought, to build climate resilience, to try to ensure that we've got enough water for California, uh, everything, all of all solutions, in my view, have to be on the table. We have to take an all-of-the-above approach. And um, that's why I was really uh, proud it, it, a couple of years ago. Uh, to champion and secure uh, some enabling legislation for the Dokini desalination project. Um, I think that responsible desal is, is certainly part of the portfolio of solutions that we need to bring to bear on this. Um, we also, and, and that this is not just true in terms of our water management, it's true across the state. We've got to do a better job at identifying best practices and rolling them out statewide. And um, I think the exciting thing that, that Orange County residents should know is when it comes to water management, water infrastructure, and uh, technology, Orange County is really leading the way. We have got uh, some world-class water recycling and water reuse programs here, and uh, we are really, I think, setting an example and setting the standards for the state. So I, I should have included earlier when we're talking about the surplus in a different topic, but it's related to the surpluses. Does any of that go for those students that are out of bed now and listening to this show, or they're going to hear the podcast later, to retire student debt? California does have a measure underway. We talked about that with your opposing candidate last month. Uh, there is there's certainly a lot of discussion around student debt, both at the, the national and at the state level, um, in fact, in my first term, so for my first two years, I chaired a select committee on student debt. And uh, I, uh, you know, we're continuing to, to do everything we can to ensure that California universities are affordable and accessible. I'm really proud to, to champion legislation that made community college free for uh, all California students. We are working on expanding Cal grants, uh, expanding both the population that qualifies for them, expanding the amount of dollars that uh, the students receive. Um, the, uh, the the conversation about retirement as uh, a student debt, as I said, it's ongoing, and so we will we'll keep you posted as, as uh, discussions unfold. Okay, that's all you're going to tell us about that. <laughs> okay, because I, I, I mean, it was it was quite the topic brought up. So I guess because. 
the it, it sort of shook a few things out of the tree I thought were kind of interesting. I thought I'd ask you the same. We've we have so many phenomenal professors and they're they're tremendous resources informing us about public health and law and earth system science and physical science and technology and I, I get to interview them and they teach me so much. But I'd like for you to tell my listeners who at UCI do you keep in your brain trust presently and over the years that you've been in elected office? Well, you are so right, Claudia. We are so blessed to have UCI uh, in Orange County, and I'm so blessed to have UCI in my district. And um, I have a number of uh, UCI professors who have served on my uh, Environmental Policy Advisory Council, uh, including... Uh, Professor Kathleen Crusader and Professor uh, Brett Sanders, um, and uh, we have—I have been able to engage their expertise, particularly when it comes to crafting policy around uh, the work that I have done to protect our local coastal communities from the threat of sea level rise, uh, and to protect our marine ecosystem. So um, really, really value their leadership and their partnership um, and certainly their expertise. So when we had, I just mentioned the the top of the hour that we have two weeks till the primary and people are already moving their absentee ballots through the mail and on their way to the registrar of, of voters office. So I, are there opportunities for folks to me? I mean, we this is a whole different scene than two years ago when you were running for office. So mm-hmm. the, there are in-person meetings, but where can people meet you before they drop their ballot off? Well, Claudia, you are right. Uh, everyone in Orange County receives a mail-in ballot this year. So every registered voter should have a ballot in their box now. The uh, election is in two weeks, but you don't need to wait. You can put that in your mailbox right now and today. And over uh, the next couple of weeks, I've got a packed schedule of uh, phone banks, uh, canvassing events. We'll be talking to voters about uh, what's at stake. Um, we've got t- tomorrow. Yeah, tomorrow is Wednesday. So uh, tomorrow, which is Wednesday, May 25th, uh, we'll be part of a virtual a virtual ballot party for Costa Mesa residents, and uh, that's tomorrow evening at 6.30. For you know, more details on uh, on these events and uh, about the campaign, you can visit my website, which is real simple. It's just Cotty, C-O-T-T-I-E dot com. Okay, there, there you have it. Well, I really, I know it's a very busy season, winding down Sacramento. You'll be back dining for all those. Well, virtual, that allows you to stay up there in the capital. So with your busy schedule, I'm so glad we could have you carve out some time to be on the show today. Thank you so much for your time on Ask a Leader, Assemblywoman Petrie Norris. Well, thank you, Claudia. Great to uh, catch up with you. Have a wonderful day. Okay, thank you. My guest was Cotty Petrie Norris, and she is running in the new 73rd district for the California State Assembly, and she is running against Stembleman Stephen Choi, who is a Republican. The two sitting represents running in a new district that includes Irvine, Costa Mesa, and portions of Tustin. We'll be right back with Orange County District Attorney Candidate Brian Chihak. Don't go away.
Welcome back to the show. My next guest is Brian Chihak. He's in here in the studio with me. It's such a treat to have guests in studio. He's one of three candidates challenging Orange County District Attorney incumbent Todd Spitzer. Mr. Chihak completed his undergraduate degree at the University of California at San Diego and his law degree at the University of Iowa College of Law. He went to work in the private sector and clerked for the United States Court of Appeals in both the 7th and 11th circuits. In 2006, he worked at the U.S. Department of Justice, including the FBI, you know where we're going with this, and now serves as counsel for the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration in the Southern District of California. In this capacity, he works with state, local, and federal partners to prosecute drug cartel members, doctors and pharmacies that diverted controlled substances, gang members, and street-level fentanyl dealers as the sole counsel for approximately 350 agents, state and federal task force officers, support staff, and contractors. He's been involved in training law enforcement, working with regulatory personnel to ensure compliance with the Controlled Substance Act. That's got to be a loaded, loaded uh, compliance exercise. And he's facilitated numerous partnerships with community organizations, wherein he twice was awarded the Excellence in Pursuit of Justice Award, by the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of California. He joins me in studio today. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Brian Chihok. Thank you. Thank you. Well, first, to keep the interviews a little bit comparable with the other two challenging the incumbent, I'd like for you to consider among the many models of district attorney around the country, some who unabashedly are committed to uh, to different approaches, um, and we hear the incumbent is always running against Gascon in Los Angeles. I mean, that's, that's I think, his leading talking point. And so I'd like to know which of those models that we're familiar with around the country, especially within the last four years, remind you of yourself. Yeah, so uh, I actually believe this is one of the problems we have in this country is we try to put labels on everybody. Yeah, I just did. Yeah, <laughs> right. So uh, at the end of the day, my belief about a, a district attorney is the position should be apolitical and really just committed to the fair, equal, and transparent administration of justice. There's going to be no doubt in my mind that every single prosecutor should be progressive in the idea that something we did in the 1980s is not something we necessarily need to be doing today. Right. But that's not a, that should not be a negative connotation in somebody who wants to make progress in towards making justice for all. But the idea of somebody is a woke prosecutor or law and order, at least for me in this day and age, doesn't make a lot of difference. Gascon is doing exactly what he said he was going to do. Right. And so whether or not you agree or disagree with his policies, he said what he wanted to do and people elected him. I personally wouldn't follow some of his policies, but he is trying something new. We need to have a different approach to justice in this country, and just simply labeling somebody as law and order or progressive, I don't think really moves the ball forward. Okay. All right. Now, the larger share of this interview, we're, uh, we're at an uncanny, fraught intersection <laughs> of government and politics with the agreements concerning the Anaheim Stadium and the surrounding properties. So if you, Brian Chiha, could talk about the district attorney's role 
interacting with the FBI investigation. We'll, we're going to start with that point. There certainly there's the Brown Act uh, dynamics prior to that. But so you are in the the federal. I don't know if you yourself saw what was taking place, and and we we're going to really have you op- unpack the entire package of what the district attorney should be doing. Inward, I mean, inside, as sure. well, which we can't see that, but we can see the outward, the public part, which is pretty spare right now. Yes. Um, so uh, just so listeners are clear, although I do work for the Department of Justice, I'm running as a private citizen. I work for the, the Drug Enforcement Administration. I don't have any inside knowledge on the Anaheim deal. It doesn't ever, you know, there aren't little meetings or memos. No, no, or we're not meeting. You're out of that loop. <laughs> yeah, I'm out of that loop. Uh, I mean, I have read about it. This is the problem, right, with sort of the past practices of the district attorney's office under uh, Spitzer and Tony Rokakis is we, the district attorney's office in Orange County used to be part of the FBI's public corruption task force, right? The, the FBI basically uh, refused to work with the district attorney's office and we had to remove ourselves from that, that office or that, that task force. And that's a real detriment to the people of Orange County because the district attorney should be intimately involved in public corruption within Orange County. I mean, you already see the, the mayor of Anaheim had to resign. You know, the uh, one of uh, Todd Amont, you know, is also being prosecuted. There was a Democrat councilwoman, I believe, that was. She, no, she is a, a political a political consultant political that consultant. resigned. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, you, you just sort of have these investigations that are so multi-layered that that it becomes a problem with perception and the public at large just views the elected leaders who are in theory designed there to serve them as all corrupt. So as a personal observer, mm-hmm. where did you start to get a bad feeling about how this was going? I mean, it was we, we knew it was covered in yeah. 2019, various dynamics in play, but I, I'm not talking about the, sure. the I'm talking about the the structural governmental part of this. What started to get your nerves a little on edge? Uh, or a well, lot on yeah. it. I mean, quite honestly, the, the sad part about it is anytime you have a deal of this size, you are immediately suspicious of, of the process, particularly when you have uh, uh, patterns of practice of non-transparency among organizations who just continually say trust because me. Because the, for the Brown Act, yeah. as the, it was a really remarkable forum. I think it was in May of 2019 that, that Jose Moreno, one of the council members, uh, convened along with the Accord organization and with the Voice of OC editor-owner, that the Brown Act exempts stadium negotiations. Mm-hmm. So there, that is like the first sign. Yeah. Something's really yeah, right. about I, to happen. And I, yes. Hold on to your checkbooks yeah. and your children. Yes. I mean, this is the problem, right? We really don't have a great track record of public officials acting in the public interest. right? We have a great track record of public officials acting in their own best interests. And that's that's sad. Right. And that's not limited to Orange County. Right. Any of these major deals, uh, it it becomes suspicious from the start because we don't really have the level of transparency that should occur in most aspects of our public governance. So transparency, how much does the district attorney have to do with making the most of a situation that's doing everything to be opaque. What's the role here? Let's unpack that as much as you can. Yeah. So uh, again, right, there are open meeting laws. So there's, there's letters that can be sent and the, the, the California department of justice actually does a pretty good job of providing sort of useful uh, downloadable information about what the requirements are for open meetings, and a district attorney's office should use those uh, uh, open meeting law letters as an educational tool 
to city councils, board members, whoever are covered. Uh, but at the end of the day, the district attorney has to start by leading it by example. Right. We should haven't we shouldn't have to wait for something like the Racial Justice Act for the district attorney to be publicly providing information about the types of crimes he or she is prosecuting the individuals that are subject to gang enhancements, gun enhancements, because that type of information is relevant to, to public discourse about how a justice system should operate. And, and to simply wait or stonewall uh, Freedom of Information Act requests doesn't set the right tone for the county or the country as a whole. So abdication of a duty is one way, but I, I sense it's a much, much more, it's more of a malfeasance, is it? Yeah, right. So, the, I mean, the, the other part of your question is you have to be part of the public corruption uh, task force and investigations, right? We need to be intimately involved with what is going on in the county and stop farming out investigative responsibilities to the federal government. This is no knock on the FBI or any federal agency. I mean, I've been with the federal government for 23 years. Uh, they have limited bandwidth. They cannot investigate every single act of public corruption. And quite frankly, they have to focus on some of the worst of the worst. But you need an office that is, is willing to tackle issues. And I'm not saying this actually exists, right? But I live in San Clemente. If the San Clemente City Council is engaged in malfeasance, you need somebody who is willing to investigate that, right? And that's not generally going to be the FBI. So does the FBI then in, in implicitly delegate these kinds of oversight situations with the district attorney's office? And, and as we all know, as I've talked about in the other interviews, it's the largest law firm in the county. And so there, there are a lot of resources, but are, are they also overextended or is there is the are the feds expecting the district attorney to, to take up some of that? Oh, absolutely. Right. I, I mean, so that the the difference there is really between the United States attorney and the district attorney's office about which cases are going to be prosecuted where. Right. You need an appropriate venue to take on public corruption. Not every public corruption case. Again, this is not a negative, but can, can be prosecuted by the U.S. attorney's office because they are a finite amount of individuals. But you need that second resource to address for lack of a better phrase, lower-level public corruption that still eats away at public institutions. So I want to talk about the, the DA's responsibilities and breaking down. So most of the attention right now on the Anaheim Stadium negotiations are about the price and the, what the, what the, the surplus <laughs> of, the, or the, let's say, the profit would be, as I guess, a sort of a kickback that would become campaign contributions for sitting Anaheim uh, City Council members. But I'm aware that what is not exempt from the Brown Act were the portions of the commitment of the Anaheim State Agreement to providing affordable housing. That whole housing element mm -hmm. is only for wonks to be aware of, but it's very much so that does the district attorney have a role in looking at where that housing element has fallen out of the picture. And there's, it's sort of like the line went dead when yeah. you're trying to find, so where are people going to live? They're not going to live in deluxe places, and they're barely making minimum wage at that. Sure. Yeah, so a absolutely, right? The, the role of the district attorney's office is to investigate and prosecute criminal activity. Right. I, I'm certainly not an expert in land use or land values, so I'm not gonna be able to tell you whether or not that was a fair market deal. But the, that is the purpose of an investigation. We have to determine whether or not there was actually an arm's length transaction for the sale of the Anaheim properties. 
from what you read in the paper, that does not seem to be the case, right? I mean, you have a mayor who on a federal wiretap is admitting to destroying evidence. That does not give a lot of people comfort that that transaction occurred above board. And so whether it be the affordable housing component, the overall price, campaign contributions, whether or not it's exempt from the Browns Act is, is, is not the relevant inquiry. It's, it, the relevant inquiry is whether or not it was an arm's length transaction and not a criminal enterprise. So as I've been, tr- we're all trying to put the pieces down in this puzzle, this elaborate puzzle. And so we're all, t- we're all realizing where people were brought on board with this. We know that the concerned witness number one, Melahad Rafi, was arrested in the, the end of 2019. I don't know exactly which month it was. But then when do you understand that the district attorney was made aware of this investigation? We all want to get an idea about that. Yeah. He, he, when should he have known? Yeah. That's, that's when, t- when, when would the sort of conventions of this kind of interagency law enforcement function happen? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, that's the difficulty, right? Uh, yeah. One of the reasons why the FBI, or at least my understanding, one of the reasons why the FBI uh, sort of withdrew from the joint task force was because of concerns about the integrity and sort of voltness, if that's a word, of the district attorney's office. Right. And they were concerned about the district attorney's inquiries into matters that they felt outside the purview of of that public corruption. So I I think there's just a lack of trust. So when did what date was that? Oh, uh, that was under Tony Rakakis. So that that was already happened. Yeah. So So that that line was not even on the the phone bank. Correct. So that wasn't even happening by the time Spitzer came in. Yeah. Right. So uh, but we've done nothing to sort of improve that relationship. And that's that's on him then as a district attorney. Absolutely. Right. To leverage that relationship into the resources, the cooperation to oversee all those big right. deals. You want to be a partner with law enforcement in general, but with the U.S. Attorney's Office, and you can't pick and choose, right? Uh, Mr. Spitzer will uh, sort of tout that he is coordinating with the U.S. Attorney's Office on the fentanyl overdose crisis, right? You can't pick and choose, I want to be on a gang task force, but not a public corruption task force. You need to be all in with these these investigative efforts because there are multiple problems facing Orange County, and we have to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. Right. The, the, the idea that public corruption is not as big a threat as fentanyl to Orange County, to me, is misguided. Right. They are targeting different people. But we need to be able to, as I said, walk and chew gum at the same time. We should be able to investigate fentanyl overdose deaths and public corruption matters with the same vigor. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Orange County District Attorney Candidate Brian Chiha, currently counsel for the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration in the Southern California District. He's on this June 7th primary. It's for all of the Orange County. We're not just talking districts. We're talking about the entire county. Has you and you're on. You're like the thirds of the last election. Um, yeah, uh, ba- <laughs> on the ballot. Uh, <laughs> the office there. And so... It's always a question to me about, and, and I usually get terrible answers when I ask, how are you getting people to participate on down ballot? So I'm just going to keep unpacking what we're talking about here with what the DA. So you're, saying, you're talking about picking and choosing which kind of cases, if there's the kind, and we know we know the kind of red meat that the district attorney incumbent mm-hmm. deals with. That's that's his favorite portion. But this this doesn't look, this looks more like veal or a chicken thigh for him. And so how... Do you interpret what do you expect is his 
responsibility while we still have, I don't want to say crickets because that's, I mean, that's an overused term now, but it's deafening that there is nothing coming out of his office. Nothing. Right. I mean, so this is the problem, right? We really have an office that is not dedicated to public corruption investigations. My understanding, I I don't know this for a fact or what the actual is, but there's some relationship between Todd Spitzer and Mr. Ament. Well, there's a there's campaign contributions. That's the relationship. Yeah. And so but these are the conflicts that sort of exist that cause reasonable individuals to question the independence of the district attorney's office. You can't. My understanding is Mr. Spitzer hasn't even returned the campaign contributions yet. Right. These are sort of basic steps that should exist. I mean, this is not the the reason, but it is a benefit. One of the reasons why I'm not accepting campaign contributions from any source is that there is a problem with perception in this county. Right. Whether or not it's uh, Pete Harden levying allegations against Todd Spitzer that he takes money from police unions and therefore is unable to appropriately investigate any police misconduct or the reverse that uh, Todd Spitzer says Pete Harden has just accepted money from George Soros and there, therefore is a Gascon clone. You've already alienated. Is that is that the- he has accepted money? I, I don't or, know, right? That's the, the, a hypothetical. The, I mean, those are the allegations the, that go back and forth. Okay. Yeah, so you know, and so this is the problem. I guess I missed that red meat part. Yeah, okay. this is the problem, right? You really have uh, money being a facilitator of distrust, right? So no matter, half the population is automatically going to distrust you because you've taken money from somebody, whether rightly or wrongly, perceived as supporting some particular agenda. So it's the, but it's the absence of any kind of commentary. We know that the incumbent district attorney is very media, aggra- I mean, sure. very aggressively uses it. And so that it's the inverse is just a real pause for anybody who's watched county government. Sure. I, I, I mean, you're almost uh, indicted by silence, right? If you're not saying, if you're not in front, I mean, whether the saying is, right, the dang- most dangerous place in Orange County is between Todd Spitzer and a camera. Or a or, mic. Or a mic, say. yeah. But you just have, right, uh, an office that is unwilling or unable to comment on in, on matters of significant public interest because they are not involved enough in matters of public corruption. So what many who I'm with whom I've conferred about preparing for this interview because like you're our civic lesson in ter- <laughs> in acting and your capacity as a candidate for district attorney, Brian Giacca, is that the investigation is still ongoing. Sure, it's not closed. So what is the confounding question about? How forthcoming concerned witness number one, Melhat Rafi, was she was uh, she was arrested in 2019. And there there's all this language about uh, she was partially cooperative. Mm -hmm. We we don't know how what that legal term means. And as the FBI agent was quoted saying that she lied to FBI uh, on the day of the arrest and, quote, has omitted material facts to investigators throughout, end quote, her cooperation with the FBI, including possible times where she's offered to pay bribes to elected public officials. So where does a district attorney, uh, well, I, I don't, well, we've talked about that th- he's just not involved yeah. in this, this uh, task force on corruption, but w- help us understand how implicated she is t- still, because we're concerned, we know of relationships with, that are very complicated mm-hmm. In, on our own Irvine City Council. They work very closely, and some of them have come out with different statements, full-throated support for her, and then others that are distancing themselves. So what? how Im- 
implicated is she in a a, a convict a, a charge that she could be convicted of eventually? Sure. So with the caveat that everyone is innocent until proven guilty, uh, this is not atypical for somebody who is arrested and has committed other misconduct, right? It is it is often difficult for individuals to fully admit their misconduct when approached by investigators. The FBI It's just like as we breathe, we right. we have that kind right. of and so and generally reaction. right right somebody who engaged okay. in this type of misconduct is sort of a um, expert liar, if you will, right? It's the, defensive. It, it's yeah. a defensive reaction. So they are going to give only the information that they think the FBI might already know, and this is how hmm. law enforcement vets informants all the time, right? They'll know ten things. They're going to ask that individual those 10 questions and they want to see if what the if that individual tells them the truth on things they know to be true before asking them about things they don't know and so you'll you'll often see where partial cooperation is then results in criminal charges because they haven't fully cooperated cooperating defendants throughout time will give you as much information as they want to give you not as much as information as you want and that, that's a, there's like a an 18-wheeler could drive through that gap. Yeah, right. I mean, well, it, often, it, it, right? Sometimes, look, there are always individuals that, you know, they have their come-to-Jesus moment and spill everything that they possibly can. It is fairly rare that you have a cooperating defendant who provides nothing but the truth from the start. And it seems structural if you have as many clients as any one business person has. And there, there, there's just so much, there's so much turf and interconnections and all that, it's hard to, um, you know, how, how to sort all that out when you're, I, it's not a deposition. What What's the kind of room that they would have been asking the questions in? Well, usually at the prosecutor's office, came in the FBI's office, it's a proffer, right? That they'll come in and tell them, hey, this is what, they can do a reverse, this is what we know, and you tell us what's true. They can give a proffer, the interviews. This, per, my understanding is uh, she's not subject to any current indictment, so she she probably has her own counsel, that person is providing her evidence uh, or counsel about what to say, when to say it. Uh, sometimes there's agreements beforehand about sort of a free period, right? Uh, during a proffer, whatever you say, we're not going to use against you, but we're expecting you to be 100% honest. If you're, It's a separate crime to lie to the FBI. Right. Yeah, you know, and so... A thousand Which withholding charge. could be. Oh, absolutely. It's, right. So but, it's material admissions are just as uh, much a crime as outright falsehoods. And I don't want to distort the culpability of the people who have been named in this uh, disclosure mm-hmm. that, that there are people that have committed much graver sins <laughs> that are um, endangering the the ability of many households to thrive if they can't if there are certain elements of that agreement that just count out a whole demographic in the city of Anaheim that that they're they're victims of a bad agreement plus the the shaking of the the cabal as they've called themselves I I thought that self-awareness was really quite interesting (laughs) that um the the self-dealing going on that uh, undermining huge important institutions that people rely on to do their their work is uh, that 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 those are bigger fish that I want to to mention in this whole situation. Yeah, and I that's mean, where the DA should be yeah, doing I, what. Uh, well, so there's a difference, right? A bad deal is not a criminal activity, right? Just be. I mean, this is a fact of life. It's not limited to Orange County. There are a lot of political uh, activities that end up screwing over uh, different groups of individuals, environmentally, the poor, homeless, drug addicted, uh, a, a whole 
host of vulnerable populations. That's not a crime in and of itself, right? Just because the, a city council or a government doesn't truly represent its people isn't the crime. The crime here is public corruption, right? Are you doing things that, that transcend sort of a bad deal into personal benefit? And this is where, as a general rule, people aren't doing this once, right? It's right, not, and that's what I'm, yeah. that we, I'm we're going to really have to wind this down really <laughs> fast here because everybody is now thinking about whether Disney should have some new scrutiny right. because of the the kind of assets and the stakes that they're involved with and their relationship with all the the members of the council over the years in Anaheim. Yeah, right. right. I mean, I mean, should the district attorney be looking at uh, well, peeling, uh, opening up books? Yeah, absolutely. Right. The, the The idea here is that you need to have public confidence in these institutions, right? It, it, but the reverse is also true, right? Like what is going on in Florida with with Disney? You can't have this sort of political retribution because some organization doesn't agree with you. You can't have political favoritism because an organization does agree with you. You need to have political leaders that are going to act in the best interest of the population and not in their own best interest. And, and there's just not the level of public confidence that the vast majority of elected leaders do that. And that's unfortunate. So final, final, and then we're out of here. Okay. So where can people find you, uh, meet you before the the drop off the ballot in two weeks yeah. deadline? Uh, so my website is uh, briancheehawk4ocda.com. It has all my contact information, and I would love to hear from you. Okay. Well, thank you so much for coming into the studio to be with me today and giving our civic lesson here on what district attorneys are about. Well, thank you very much. My guest was Brian Tehawk. He's the Orange County District Attorney candidate, currently counsel for the United States Drug Enforcement Administration of the California. And I always thank candidates for running for office. It's a it's a big job. Well, that's my wrap. And for next week's show, we'll have on Scott Baugh, another candidate challenging Congresswoman Katie Porter in the now the new 47th Congressional District. Talk with you next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening. <laughs>